When life happens, plans need to change. Shaping Change, hosted by certified financial planner Ross Marino, is dedicated to helping financial advisors better serve their clients when life takes those unexpected turns. Welcome to the Shaping Change show. Today, I am joined by Courtney Pollan, author of one of my favorite books, Intentional Wealth, How Families Build Legacies of Stewardship and Financial Health. Courtney, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Loved your book when I first read it four or five years ago, started to read it again, even more impactful and more insightful based on my journey of the last four or five years. But I know you just didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to write a book on intentional wealth. There's a history behind that. Could you walk us through how you got to that point and why you knew you had to write this book? Yeah, there's really two parts of that, Russ, is that the first is... I was originally trained as a, as a psychotherapist and had a private practice for a number of years and transitioned into family business consulting over the years and did a big stint in corporate consulting. So anyway, my career was on track and on a track, I shouldn't say on the track. And I was referred by, uh, into a, a bank here in Denver, Colorado with one of their largest clients, that is what we call an enterprise family. It was not a family, an operating family business, but it was several generations sharing wealth. So I did what many of us would do when you're looking at a new client engagement. I went out and read everything on that new topic I could find, which was like one or two books at the time. Uh, This is obviously many years ago, uh, probably about 27 years ago now. And I encountered the proverb shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which basically says it's a worldwide phenomenon that goes all the way back to the Bible that wealth creators, that's the first generation, that by the third generation, by the end of the third generation, the family will fall apart or implode 90% of the time. And it was one of those moments in my career where I'm like, wait a minute, did I hear that right? And it just woke me up to something that I said to myself, I want to be able to make a difference in that space. And a lot of my career has been focused on trying to solve for that problem with the families that I now serve. And so that's a, a little bit of a historical context. I really enjoy public speaking, talking to people, listening to people, and I hate to write. But a friend and colleague of mine um, who is very well known in this industry, Jay Hughes, said to me several times over the years, Courtney, you need to write a book. And I'm like, I don't want to write a book. I'm not interested. But it just kept coming up for me that that would be a way, a practical way that I could have an impact and make a difference in this space. So what I did was to deal with my writer's block, I interviewed families that had made it past the third generation. And I asked them the question, what do you attribute to your success? Now that energized me as a writer because it's one of my favorite things to do to ask people questions and listen to them and pull information together and intentional wealth was born out of that experience. 
So that's the short story. I first heard you speak a few years ago, and I remember when I did a follow-up phone call to you because I wanted to talk to you about speaking at one of my conferences. And what cracked me up is I wanted to know about your practice because listening to you speak to a group of financial planners who emphasize transition planning and understanding what our clients go through, you're obviously a financial planner just like me. To me, there was no question in my mind, you're not. But you have such insight and depth into what our clients think and how they feel. It just didn't cross my mind, Courtney, that you weren't a practitioner just like me. And it, it really, it really caught me. And I thought that was cool. And you were laughing. And I thought it was great that no, okay, you just really do get us. And not only do you understand what we're doing, it's that understanding of the clients. And you talk about three generations. These are high net worth families where three generations. 90% of the time, the wealth goes poof. How about you walk our listeners through what those three generations are and give some characteristics of each one? Absolutely. Now, I ought to default to stereotypes, but it'll be helpful, I think, for this particular conversation. So the first generation called G1, that's the wealth creator generation. And all the stereotypes that come to mind about a wealth creator, entrepreneurial, hardworking, roll up your sleeves and do it, all that, those good values that tend to follow a wealth creator. And one of the things, one of the mistakes that a wealth creator does or makes is that they are often, I mean, you know the stories probably almost as well as I do. I've heard hundreds of stories about these wealth creator generation um, like a manufacturing business. I mean, literally changing their kids' diapers on the floor of the manufacturing floor. I mean, it's like they're working 60, 70 hours a week. They've devoted their life to making this go. And the last thing they want to do with their success is make their kids go through that same hazing, shall we call it, that they went through. So it's very well intended. So that's the wealth creator generation. The second generation, they, they were the babies getting their diapers changed on the factory floor, right? They grew up around this. So they, they see the values, they see the hard work. So the first generation creates it. The second generation statistically maintains it. And then the third generation, all they didn't grow up on the factory floor, so to speak it kind of just looks like magic to them. You just show up and you, you have it, you have success. So they have a tendency to squander the wealth because they're disconnected from the core values, the discipline of hard work, all that comes along with that. And again, it just looks kind of easy. You just show up and you get to live in this great big house and drive nice cars and so forth and so on. So that's the primary reason for that failure in the third generation. It's more than just money. And I loved how your book really explains that it's not just the money that goes poof, but you also talked about the family relationships. And I want to interject real quickly that when I first started reading your book, I sent you an email saying, this is a five-star book, Courtney, love it, fantastic. One of the best things I ever read. 
what's funny about that was I hadn't actually started the book. I just read the introduction <laughs> and it was so apparent to me that you were dialed in on what we go through. And you talked a little bit about the family relationship. So yes, by the third generation, the money may go poof, but there's a cost emotionally, relationally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, in a way, Ross, all we need to do is kind of look at uh, in the grocery store line uh, when you see the magazine covers about what money can do to families or to individuals. And, you know, our dear friend and colleague Susan Bradley has done such pioneering work in that whole idea of sudden wealth and what happens to people. So there is a wealth has a tendency to exacerbate pre-existing fault lines, which is something I mentioned in my book. So money doesn't cause bad things to happen, but what it does is it in, enlarges the tension points. They exist in all families. Yeah. Even the best of families, they, the kids have a tendency to maybe keep score a little bit. Like you got a little bit more for your birthday than I did for my birthday or life isn't fair and all that really normal stuff. But when you add a bunch of zeros to the bottom line of the family, it's really magnified. So it has a tendency to really exacerbate those pre-existing fault lines for a family. So it's to your point is that it's not all, it's not about the money, is the family tends to completely fall apart they end up in litigation. They end up just destroying each other along the way because the very thing they thought would bring the family together, i.e. the family business, the family money, or sharing a foundation together or whatever, that is the friction point that just really destroys the family. Would you say that's more common than not in that 90% crowd? Yeah, it's more common than not for sure. Yeah. You wrote that there's one unique aspect of great wealth that can foster dysfunction. For me, it was the number one takeaway. And it was in that amazing part of your book known as the introduction, where yeah. I loved it. And, and I highlighted it. And the reason it home hit home with me is when I read it, my kids were like 10 and 13. So they were just coming into a world of awareness of what you buy and what you have and what other kids have and the social media. And uh, for my peers and for my clients, everybody was in a similar situation, it really resonated with me on this is a major problem of kids who grow up in an indulgent world or feeling entitled. Can you talk about the number one takeaway? Yeah, and that leads me to my favorite parenting quote. It comes from D.W. Winnicott, which says, the primary job of a parent is to optimally frustrate your child. Isn't that great? Love it. Yeah. And it's so true about parenting is that if we're always saying yes, we're not giving the child the, the opportunity to deal with the friction, the tension of that optimal frustration. So saying yes to everything or our inability to say no can really harm a child emotionally and psychologically. So it's so important that we we have that capacity to say no and deal with their frustration because from that they emerge a stronger person. So that's just really an important aspect of it. Now that's tough enough, I believe, for all parents or most of us. 
but you, with a wealthy family, it's harder even to say no, because what we can default to is, let's say, as a middle-class family is, I'm not going to buy you a car for your 16th birthday. Do you think I made a money? I mean, we, we don't even drive nice cars ourselves. It's, the, the no is easier. But when you have such incredible financial resources, then it's, you can't just say, we can't afford that. And kids need a sense of guardrails. I remember one of the uh, stories uh, that I talked about in my book and I did in my interview is that this man married into a very wealthy family. He married a woman in the second generation. He said, Courtney, the strangest thing about marrying into this family is that when I was a kid growing up in a very blue collar family is that I knew the guardrails. They were very consistent, very reliable. I marry into this family and there, there are no guardrails. I mean, money can buy all sorts of things. So I've had to really find my own way with creating an internal structure. So all that to say, a big job for us as parents is to provide that structure, those boundaries that are healthy for a child. And saying yes to everything is not a gift to the child, fundamentally. So much of our growth comes from restrictions or conflict or consequences. And I, one of the few things I learned early as a parent is to make sure I don't say we can't afford that. Right. Because that's an easy excuse for a lot of us. It it's simple to say that. And when yep. kids are younger, I'm not sure they understand that. By the time they hit their teens, if you're even above average for middle class, they're not buying it. Because they're right. not asking for something that costs $5,000. They're just right. asking for something that they know you could buy. So yeah. I always struggled with, do you just say no? But I think what I worry most about with this and why it was the takeaway is, learning to deal with no and then trying to solve problems without spending money is such a big part of the growth. And if you have these generations that don't learn to problem solve and adapt and maybe weigh things of I could do A or I could do B, because if I have money, I can do both. I really think it stunts their growth. Is this something you see in the development of the kids in these future generations? Oh, absolutely. I, that's a really good phrase is there. I hate to say that it's so common, but it is quite common. The further you get away from the wealth creator generation, their, um, their sense of entitlement can be pretty profound. And the wealth has really stunted their growth. I've done a lot of work with YPL, Young Presidents Organization over the years. I remember the first few times I heard this saying, I thought, huh. And they, they would often say to me, Courtney, I'm just a member of the Lucky Sperm Club. Ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, that is so diminishing and so devaluing to say that about yourself, that you're just lucky. So it can really stunt their growth. And that phrase speaks to the inner psychology of these young adults is that they struggle with that um, mightily and trying to find their own sense of identity in the face of, I can never compare myself to the 
my dad or my grandfather who made all this money. So it just sets up a sense of hopelessness for them um, or helplessness or a sense of atrophy for them. So it's so important that they really learn how to build their own set of muscles and in essence deal with that optimal frustration. I certainly notice, and this is stereotyping and overgeneralizing, but I'll do it anyway, because I think it stresses a point. You see two groups of people who are well-to-do or wealthy. You see them if you're a member of a country club. You've got the group that knows what it's like to stare down bankruptcy and how am I going to make payroll on Friday? And they've done it so many times. By the time they actually have excess cash flow and their net worth substantial, there's a humility and a gratefulness that you can't get away from. It shapes who you are. And then there's the other crowd that maybe didn't work for it. They tend to think and act and speak a little differently. Maybe I'm just a little more dialed in because of what I do, but to me, it's quite apparent that you have two different groups of people. And as they age, that group that didn't work for the money, maybe not as much generation two, but definitely generation three, you think that you can spot them in 60 seconds in a conversation. And how do they feel being around people that are like maybe their grandfather or grandmother who worked for the money, knowing that they worked hard and earned it? I wonder how that impacts how they go through life and how do they develop their own self-worth when it's already well down the path in life and they know that they didn't work for it and they're not going to because they're already 40 or 50. Yeah, I mean, what you're reminding me of is that that first grouping of people that you were talking about, they possess a sense of gratitude, uh, a deep sense of appreciation that I feel so blessed to have been given so much of an opportunity. And conversationally with them, you feel that deep sense of humility and that deep sense of gratitude. And the second part of that is they have a, a really deep sense of stewardship. And when I do values retreats for these families, that's something they talk a lot about is, we are just stewards of this money. This isn't even really our money. We are, to be a good steward of that. And they really define really what does that mean? And that guiding sense of, as I've already said, of humility is something that is really missing in that second category of people that you talked about. So they don't possess those three fundamental values or characteristics. So when I'm working with those families, that's something I'm really advocating for them is they need to get grounded in those that North Star for themselves. And internally, this is gonna sound like a crude way of saying it, it must suck to be them in a way because they know that internally at some level, their, their life is very incongruent and really helping them and guiding them to leading a very authentic values-based life really is the key to their happiness. So we can really be of service to them as advisors if we can help them with that particular struggle. Because even if they're looking annoying and obnoxious like those people you described, and we all know those people, we can see them a mile away, their inner world is they're grossly unhappy. So that's part of our job is to, 
explain that this is a way, the pathway to happiness, so to speak, for them. So as a financial planner, if I have some new clients that come in and I see the multi-generations, whether it's, well, let's, let's start with generation one. So generation one comes in, get the phone call. We're selling our business for 10 or $20 million. And, uh, you know, kids don't want us to sell the business. They want the business for many different reasons. But if the parents are going to sell it and I have to sit down with them, how do you think I should engage them from a conversation standpoint? Wow, that's a big question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for them is as exciting as it may be to now have 20 or $30 million from the sale of that business, they no longer have an identity. This is their baby that they are selling. And I've never known, never have I encountered a seller of a business that thinks that the buyer really appreciates what they're getting. I don't mean appreciates the value as much as emotionally appreciates it. It's their baby that they're letting go of. And for them, it's a big emotional loss. And they don't feel like advisors really connect with that because financial advisors look at that as like, wow, heyday for you. I mean, this is really cool. You built this amazing business and then you're going to have this big liquidity event. Yay. Well, yeah, but beneath the yay is what am I going to do with my life now? What's my next chapter? This is my, my entire identity has been formed about building this business. So it can really be a setup for a lot of despair and even depression for, for business owners. So for financial advisors like yourself and others, it's really important to be very sensitive to that, to really talk to them about what's it like to let go of your dream of your baby. And let's get clear about your new purpose in life. Because for the last 50 years, it's been the business. What can I do to support you on a path forward that has meaning and substance for you? It's a tough journey. It is a tough journey. And it just reminded me that the first time I heard you speak, which was many years ago, you spoke about purpose. And I, re I remember it was so engaging because I think it was PMO for people in the financial yep. transitionist world. And that's purpose, method, and outcome. And that's what made me want to call you afterwards because this is the issue with the business owners, when they sell that business, it's a liquidity event. That's the financial side. That's the technical side. The human side is, is what they built, what's been so challenging. They're able to measure it. They've got EBITDA. They've got the value of the business. They have all these markers to say, look what we've done. And then all of a sudden, crickets. That, that's brutal. And now you say you have to switch to find your purpose, which we know isn't going to happen in a day or two. So could you talk maybe a little bit about PMO and how you would approach that? Uh, thank you. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, because to begin with, this design principle called purpose, method, and outcome is the design of how life goes when life is working well. And you could apply it to anything in your life like 
Um, my wife is celebrating her 60th birthday. We're going to go on a river cruise in September to celebrate her birthday. We need to define what's the purpose behind this vacation of ours. Because if we don't define the purpose, the fundamental why, we're doomed to failure and unhappiness and disappointment. Because what most of us do, whether we're designing a good estate plan or a good vacation, is rather than starting a purpose, we start a method. We start at how. So I'm on the phone with my travel agent and talking about this and blah, blah, blah. I just jump into the how. So purpose is answering the question of why, method, how, and then outcome is answering the question of what. What's your vision? What do we, what's the outcome we want to be seeing? My experience with all of us human beings, particular in this financial services space, is that we are experts. We're good technicians. So we start at method and we loop between method and outcome. It's so important to slow down and say, what is the purpose behind the vacation or purchasing the vacation home or selling the business? Those are the really the guiding questions that we as advisors, as trust advisors need to really be engaging in or the questions of purpose. And even selling a business has so many moving parts. You have to make decisions on how much you take, what are the terms, right? there. This isn't just write me a check and we're gone. It's never that clean. Right. I'm wondering how could you even navigate the method of how we do this without being grounded in, here's why I need to do this. I mean, doesn't that give you the fuel to say I'm going to push through and make decisions on the method? And if I don't have it, how do I get through that process? Well, gosh, you said it so well. That is often what's missing in it's, it is the fuel. It's the touchstone for all of the method conversations. And it also is so helpful for us as advisors to individuals and couples and families that we're working with to, it's such a gift to help them define the purpose. And then as you are doing your good job on having the method conversations, it's important to pause every once in a while and check in with that purpose. Are the decisions we're making about what to do next with you supporting that purpose we've defined? So it gets you out of the role of being the good cop or the bad cop and empowers them to a, a coaching conversation, really. You tell me, is this fulfilling your purpose? Is this accessing that fuel that you were just talking about? I remember a conversation years ago, sitting with someone where I was trying to get to the purpose. And it was a sudden money, sudden wealth type of liquidity event. And the person kept talking about the method. And it took literally four and a half hours of conversation, an entire afternoon in the conference room, till finally, this person said, I will not be like my parent. And they said it with a forcefulness that makes my chest tighten up because the tears just flowed after that because the parents held the money like this. Yeah. And the kids lived through that and thought, are you kidding me? And this person didn't want to spend money on themselves. 
They wanted the money to impact the world. It was refreshing, but I didn't know the driver, but I knew there was a why in there. The conversations, they just weren't clicking. And then finally, when interrupted, it's when you realize this is why we ask people, what's your story? And we want to get their history and you have to dig in. And when you go into that PMO, when you look for the purpose, when you find your why, which is a common statement, then you're now in a position to help someone make decisions which are right for them. Absolutely. Now, there are a couple of things I want to unpack about what you said. First, bravo to you that you knew something was missing and you just had the patience and the wherewithal to really trust your instincts about that because most advisors don't do that. The second is a tip for all of us that is not foolproof, but provides good guidance is that 99.9% of the time when I ask someone, so what's the purpose behind that for you? They give me a goal. I'm an, an outcome. So I don't say to them, Ross, that's a, that's a goal. That's not a purpose. I just say, got it. Tell me more about why that is important for you. Huh, okay, got it. What would happen if that were to be fulfilled? Say more about why that's important to you. So I'm just repackaging the question three or four times. And then what it does is it hits that emotional core that you were just talking about. And when you hit that cord, you can feel it in the room and then you know you've got the bedrock purpose for them. And man, can your planning take off from there because many times they didn't know what the purpose was. So you just gave them the gift of guiding them through that conversation to get clarity on, ah, oh, yeah, that's why this is so important to me. I do remember one time asking the what's your story format and listening to someone explain their history. And then before I could even ask, do you think that influences your financial decisions today? The person just rolled right into it. And it was a Zoom call and uh, Joan Cox, who's with our firm, we were both on the call just watching these people walk through it. And I, I just laughed because all my follow-up questions, this person just kept answering one right after another. I thought this was classic. This was scripted and I didn't have to open my mouth. But, <laughs> but it, the, the person was self-aware. They're a deep thinker and it just had never crossed their mind before. And I didn't think about that till you said that, but we may assume that people know why they do what they do, that they're aware of their drivers. And you know, I think that's wrong. I, I think we have to give them the opportunity to talk through it because they may just roll. And then all of a sudden they're in a different place and now our relationship's in a different place. Right. Well said. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the final question. And that is for all of our shows, it's the magic wand question. And this is snatched from my daughters, Disney <laughs> certified, daughter approved. I think it works. But if it did work and I let you borrow this magic wand and wave it, if you could change anything in the world, Courtney, what would you change? Wow. That is such a big question. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is something that we all know to be true, but we forget on a daily, if not hourly basis. And that is we're all connected. 
I believe that the greatest source of disharmony in our families and our workplaces and our society is the separateness, the silo behavior, the competition of it's me against you, I win, you lose, that type of mentality. If we could just all step back and just remember that inner wisdom of we're all in this thing together. We're not enemies of each other. We all, speaking of purpose, we all are united in the shared purpose together. Can we be about finding that one rather than what divides us? Excellent answer. Thank you for writing your book. Thank you for investing in the lives of financial planners and helping us understand the power of purpose and what these wealthy families who are successful have done. And lastly, in a very small way, thanks so much for being on the show today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shaping Change with Ross Marino. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results. Visit rlsummit.com to learn more.